0: We know what the primary tools in the toolbox are, but we don't know how relatively effective they are and what the trade-offs are. And in the absence of some ability to evaluate that, it's kind of like taking shots in the dark. And you can see it with the responses that the platforms are making to various instances of misinformation and disinformation, right? The, part of the reason why these responses feel so scattershot, right, some posts get a uh, contextual warning, some get a little more, sometimes the post is removed, sometimes the account is removed, sometimes it's a temporary removal, is because we don't really have a principled basis for making good judgments about which intervention is the right fit for which kind of problematic content.
1: I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 10th. 2021. The spread of misinformation is one of the biggest challenges facing social media platforms. A standard approach is to label suspicious posts or links, so as to warn users that what they're quote-unquote engaging with is not reputable. But warnings, despite their wide use, haven't proven to be particularly successful. So what's a social media platform to do? Two Princeton University computer scientists, Ben Kaiser, a Ph.D. student. And Professor Jonathan Mayer think they found a better way. Instead of warning users about misinformation, they propose putting roadblocks between users and the misinformation they're tempted to click on. I spoke with Ben and Jonathan about their research and about a piece they wrote recently for Lawfare entitled, Warnings That Work Combating Misinformation Without Deplatforming. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 10th. Ben Kaiser and Jonathan Mayer on Fighting Misinformation Online. Ben, Jonathan, thank you very much for joining me. So let's jump into it. And let's start with an overview of the the problem space. So what techniques, whether technological or non-technological, do online platforms currently
2: use to fight disinformation? Thanks for having us, Alan. There are three main categories of options that platforms have now for moderating mis- and disinformation. One thing that uh, you see them do a lot is de-platform. So they'll uh, remove content that they've identified as you know, potentially harmful or violating their policies. They'll ban accounts, sometimes temporarily, sometimes permanently. Uh, the other category you'll see is a deranking. Sometimes they will reduce the spread of content by tweaking how their recommendation algorithm sees that content. And this will reduce the, the spread and also the likelihood that that content will be recommended to more people, increasing its exposure. Similarly to deranking, you'll also see limits placed on engagement with content. So Twitter does this a lot, preventing content that violates policy from being retweeted or shared. And this has a similar effect to deranking, where it uh, mostly decreases the spread and exposure of this content. Uh, The the final category of intervention is uh, what we looked at in our research, and that's warnings or other types of labels or added context. Uh, And so the idea here is uh, you attach some warning to a particular post uh, maybe it's a, a little label that appears beneath the post. We, we see a lot of those. Uh, maybe it's something uh, that's a little more intrusive, like the warnings that we studied. And the goal here is to uh, inform users and help them make an informed decision about sort of whether or not to uh, consume and believe that content.
1: And so is there much evidence either way as to whether these warnings work? And and also what counts as working in this context? So are we just trying to get people to be skeptical about potential disinformation that they come across um do we want them not to click on the disinformation link at all because this warning appears do we not want them to spread the disinformation within their social network you know what is it we're trying to achieve and do these warnings seem to work
2: the the research so far has focused on two main outcomes uh that you you want an intervention to achieve so uh the first is belief in the content that's behind the warning so after you see a warning are you less likely to believe uh, the content that you've read? The other outcome that we see a lot is intent to share. So uh, researchers will often ask people uh, after seeing this warning, you know, would you share this post on on social media? Those two goals get at the main purpose of warnings for platforms. They want to help their users have more context about the information they're going to consume so that they're less likely to believe uh, false or intentionally false information. And they're also designed to help reduce the spread of this information, so make people less likely to just click, retweet, or reshare when they see this information. Now, there's another line of research on warnings that comes from a different domain, uh, which is information security. And the main outcome of interest that researchers in this field settled on is click-through. And so this gets at Do people actually click on the content that the warning is in front of? Do they visit that page? Do they read that story? Or do they simply uh, ignore it and move on? So um, all three of those outcomes are of interest to designers of misinformation warnings. And what the research shows right now is that um, the warning designs that are currently in use are not particularly good at achieving those outcomes. So, uh, the vast majority of of studies of these warnings have found that they don't do that much to change user beliefs they really don't do that much to change intent to share and in terms of click through and actual behavioral uh, effects, uh, we haven 't seen that much research yet, but the research there is suggests that again these the contemporary warning designs that are being used do very little to actually change click through and those sorts of behaviors
1: so now let's get into the the research that that you and Jonathan and your collaborators uh, have been doing. So what did you find about different types of warnings and what the different effectiveness of different types might be?
2: Yeah, so as I previewed, we drew on research from the security discipline. And the the reason is that there's a lot of expertise in in security, especially in the usable security discipline that has looked at warnings in the past and um, made some pretty significant leaps in effectiveness. So, uh, security researchers considered two main kinds of warnings. The first are contextual warnings. So these appear next to, uh, some sort of risky or dangerous content or, you know, above, below it. Uh, it's some sort of icon or message that, you know, is just designed to, uh, give some sort of indication or small amount of context for a given piece of content.
1: And so let me just let me just make sure that we're sort of all on the same page here. So when you're talking about usable security or the context of this research, this is like if I type a web address in my uh, in my browser and then I get this warning saying this is potentially insecure website, you should run the other way, but it still lets me click through if I really want to, or you know I want to download something and click on it, and Windows pops up and says. You know, this is a random EXE file. Maybe you shouldn't download this, but it gives you the option. This is—is is this the security research that
2: we're talking about? Yes, exactly. Right. There's there's a few categories of uh, uh, harmful content that security researchers were concerned about when they started developing warnings. So you pointed out uh, malware. Uh, that's a good one, right? A random executable, uh, insecure websites, and then also phishing and other forms of scams. And so when when this type of content uh, started proliferating widely on the Internet, the platforms of the day, uh, researchers, uh, browser vendors, uh, software developers started putting warnings in their software because they thought it would be an effective way to inform users and help them make better decisions. What they found was that these contextual warnings, the labels, the icons, the toolbars, uh, really did very little to change user behavior. Uh, People overwhelmingly would ignore them, dismiss them, or in many cases, not even notice them because of how unobtrusive the designs were. And so uh, what happened in security is after about a decade of research that involved close collaboration between academic researchers and the practitioners at these uh, software companies, they ended up settling on interstitial warnings as the standard format. So an interstitial warning is one that actually interrupts the user's flow and uh, forces them to make an affirmative decision about whether or not to continue on to a piece of content. So uh, a pop-up is a form of interstitial, a full-page uh, warning that uh, you might have seen you know if you use Google Chrome or Firefox or, or any of the major browsers, and then you try to access some insecure site, you'll see these full-page warnings. These are all forms of, of interstitials. And what the research in usable security found is that these interstitials were much, much, much more effective at informing and protecting users. So uh, the, the sort of culmination of this research was a, a massive field study of browser users that found about a 75% effectiveness rate for the interstitial warnings of the day. So that means 75% of the time uh, when people would encounter these interstitial warnings in front of some dangerous content, they would go back, right? They would heed the warning and, and not visit the potentially dangerous website. Now, coming forward to uh, the modern day and to misinformation warnings, what we see widely are contextual warnings, right? If you see a label on Twitter or on Facebook, on YouTube, chances are it's, it's likely a contextual warning. And what the research on these warnings shows broadly is that they have very small effects, if any effect, on user behavior and, and, and user beliefs. So there's been a good amount of research at this point and and this is this is a, a pretty settled conclusion that uh, you know if these warnings do have effects on on users uh, they're fairly minimal. And so what we set out to do with our research was take some of these lessons learned from usable security researchers and and see if they could be adapted and applied to advance misinformation warnings. And, and so that's why our research looked at both uh, contextual warnings, sort of similar to uh, the labels that you see often now, and then also interstitial warnings based on designs used in the security domain.
1: And could you give just a brief, brief overview of the, the methodology of your, of your research? I think it's always useful to get a sense of how it is that we try to study something as kind of complicated as disinformation in, in the real world. So just kind of briefly give us a sense, you know, how did you in fact come to the conclusions that you came to that interstitial warnings are, you know, X percentage points more effective than contextual warnings?
2: Uh, So the methodology that we used is uh, a series of studies. We ran two uh, laboratory style studies, and that's in contrast to something like a field study where you actually encounter users in their real environment, right? on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, you have access to data about their real activity on those platforms. Without access to that data, our research is really restricted to these kinds of laboratory studies where you bring someone in, you show them a simulated environment, and uh, you observe you know, their behavior and their responses in that environment. And so that's what we did uh, across two different studies. We started with a smaller scale qualitative study where we brought users in, uh, we showed them a mocked up uh, version of Google search results, We attached contextual warnings in some cases and interstitial warnings in other cases to some of these results. And then we asked users to do information retrieval tasks, find the answer to some relatively simple question. And they would perform a search. Uh, They would see these warnings. And we would ask them about their responses to the warnings, uh, their perceptions of those warnings. We would observe whether the warnings had an effect on their behavior. So did users who uh, saw warnings choose different search results than users who didn't see warnings? And uh, we, we were able to use all that information to get an initial sense that interstitial warnings were likely to be much more effective than contextual warnings. But this was a qualitative study primarily. So it gave us lots of theories about you know what types of warnings might be more effective, why interstitial warnings might be more effective than contextual warnings. But it didn't actually establish quantitative evidence. And that's why we designed a second follow-on study. For this one, we recruited a much larger population of crowd workers, and again, had them walk through a simulated search uh, engine uh, where they would complete information retrieval tasks and see, uh, in this case, only interstitial warnings. So we honed in on interstitial warnings for this second study. Otherwise, the design of the study was was quite similar, but the larger scale uh, let us develop some quantitative metrics about the effects of these warnings. And so uh, we measured the actual behavior of the users in this simulated environment. So uh, instead of asking them, how might you behave if you saw this warning on social media? Would you be likely to share it? Uh, We were actually able to observe which results they clicked on. You know, when they encountered these interstitial warnings, did they go forward and and look at the disinformation website or uh, did they go back? And uh, before answering the information retrieval tasks that we had posed to them, uh, you know, would they check a second source? So that was one goal that we realized we could uh, measure in this simulated environment. Not only did they click through the warning, but after clicking through the warning, did that warning still have a lingering effect on their decision-making process? You know, after going back to search results, did they click on another result uh, in order to maybe validate or verify or independently check the information they saw on the warned page? So, uh,
0: Ellen, you you asked about real-world evaluation of warnings. And I want to jump jump in on that because one of the things we discovered in the course of conducting this research is just how difficult it is to create um, realistic simulations of online activity. And that's why you see these papers using survey methods or kind of contrived tasks asking you know, self-reported evaluations, do you think you might share this on social media, which is not an ideal method. We know that that type of self-reported data about uh, user behavior online isn't very accurate. The the gold standard, of course, would be data about what users actually do. And uh, switching gears to policy for just a moment, it's illustrative to compare the development process for information security warnings to the process for misinformation warnings. Uh, Ben gave a, a great. Uh, history of misinformation warnings and how about a decade ago, major software vendors, uh, Google and Mozilla, for instance, uh, worked hand in hand with researchers and folks were rotating in and out of academia and these companies. There was open data. uh, There were open publications um, and just really rapid iteration on different warning designs. And that's very different from today where we have the occasional corporate blog post Uh, cheering some new warning, often very similar to the last, often getting some form of mildly positive press bump. To the extent there's data, it tends to be some count of how often the warning was shown to users. No real effectiveness data, no engaging with researchers about effectiveness, no peer-reviewed publications looking at effectiveness, not a lot of iteration and design. And part of what we took away from this project was that That needs to change. The development process for misinformation warnings needs to look a lot more like the information security warning development process. It's obvious why the processes are different. The incentives are very different. No one is in favor of online scams, I guess, other than scammers. But this is a place where the government could
1: really make a constructive difference in changing the paradigm for how these warnings are developed. So before we get into the the policy stuff, I I do want to spend a couple more minutes asking... Or digging in a little bit more to to the research and what you found about interstitial warnings. So one question I have, and maybe this is the most basic, you know, do you have a theory of why it is the case that interstitial warnings are so much more effective than contextual warnings? This research is, is super interesting and it's a kind of applied psychology research in a sense. And so, you know, do we have any good psychological theories for why interstitial warnings are so much more effective? Is it they're just a bigger roadblock? They're just more annoying, or they they do something cognitively or effectively in the the user's mind? Um, you know, so do do we do we know why there's this difference?
2: Yeah. So uh, coming out of our our initial qualitative study, we had a couple of theories about uh, why the interstitial warnings uh, were performing so well. The first was that they were more effective at informing users, right? So they they have more room uh, for text and 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 uh, explanation about uh, the nature of the risk and and what users can do if they encounter disinformation. So that's one theory, right? Maybe these interstitial warnings are just better at informing people about the risks that they're going to face. Another theory we considered is that the interstitial warnings were more threatening, uh, that people uh, maybe associate them with computer security risks or uh, other unspecified uh, dangers. You know, they're, they're full page. They, they do seem a little more threatening than the very innocuous uh, contextual labels that we see on platforms these days. And so we, we were also uh, interested in whether there was sort of a, a threatening or a fear-based component to uh, the efficacy of these warnings. And then finally, uh, there's the question uh, just plainly of, of design and, and the friction introduced by an interstitial warning. So you know, a contextual warning, you don't have to engage with. Uh, you can easily read the content and share it without ever even seeing the warning, uh, let alone you know, actually considering its message. Uh, interstitial warning, by contrast, forces you to interact, at least to click continue, uh, but ideally also to actually engage with the content of the warning and, and read it and spend a little more time on it. Is there any way to disentangle
1: these sort of three effects from just the novelty effect of interstitial warnings, right? So, you know, if platforms aren't not using interstitial warnings much, if at all right now, then, you know, one reason why they may be so much more effective is that they're they're new to users. And so one might imagine or one might worry that their effectiveness would drop off over time as people get used to interstitial warnings and, you know, they get used to whatever pop up Facebook puts in front of them, and, and they just start clicking through it. Uh, and this you know, might not happen the first or second or fifth time, but it might happen the 20th or 30th or 50th time. So is that something that, that you were able to, to think about, or, or do you have any hypotheses for,
2: for whether that might be a real problem or not? Good question. Uh, again, drawing from security research, there definitely is a risk of habituation, To these kinds of warnings, Uh, just like with any user interface change or or intervention, right? As users become used to uh, seeing these UI features, they tune them out. Uh, they're they're less likely to pay really close attention to them. So that is a potential concern. It's not something we were able to test in uh, this initial round of studies. Uh, it is definitely something uh, that's going to be important to look into. but the state of the field is so is is still fairly far I think from from that being a concern, right? Let's see if we can get warnings that work effectively on first exposure first and 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 then we can uh, look at whether that effectiveness drops off over time.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I I completely agree with Ben. If we're in a world where we have effective warnings and now we have to worry about how to keep them effective over time, that is a much better world than we're in right now with the state of misinformation warnings. I want to highlight a point Ben made about the potential role of friction in interstitial misinformation warnings because I think it raises some interesting societal questions. Let's suppose. And I want to emphasize our, our data does not show this now. We'd like to explore this in follow-on work, but let's suppose that misinformation warnings with interstitial designs inform users. They get users to believe in more accurate things. They get users to not engage with misinformation, but the primary causal mechanism is friction rather than informing users. Right. So users are informed, but the but for cause of them not engaging with this content, not believing this content is the friction rather than the information content. What does that mean as a matter of free speech? I think that's a hard question and in many respects, uh, not a scientific question.
1: Another question I had about your your data was, I was just wondering if you had seen any differences in effectiveness based on the type of disinformation at issue, right? So, you know, there's anti-vax disinformation, there's electoral disinformation, there's, I mean, there's millions of different kinds of disinformation. And I'm curious if the different populations of users that might be more or less drawn to different types of disinformation might also react or you know, might react more or less to interstitial warnings? Or did you see you know, whatever effectiveness uh, or, or whatever difference in effectiveness between different types of warnings, you sort of saw those across the board, uh, you know, no matter the, the content
2: of the disinformation presented? So for the content in our studies, we focused on one type, which was content about uh, local news and, and politics. So sort of regional stories, things that we uh, expected our research participants would not already be extremely familiar with or, or sort of have strong prior beliefs about. So we just looked at that one type of content in, in this study. So you know, as far as how uh, the effects of warnings might differ based on the type of content, that's not something that this research speaks to, but it is something that uh, is, is definitely worth looking at. I will say, uh, on a related note, uh, one distinction we did study is whether there would be uh, a partisan valence in in response to these warnings. So uh, you can imagine, especially because we looked at disinformation in a political context, that partisan alignment might affect uh, responses to these warnings. And uh, we did not find a significant difference between participants who identified as Democrats and those who identified as Republicans in terms of their responses to the warnings
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chat bot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company,
1: offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And, and right now, you know, before we get into the policy questions in, in terms of, you know, should platforms use this more and in, in what ways are platforms using these kinds of warnings? I mean, you know, they may be doing t- internal testing and all the AB stuff that Facebook and Twitter does all the time, but you know, is there anyone using this at
2: scale right now? Platforms are using uh, some forms of inefficient warnings sparingly, I would say. So uh, the one that is probably the most common that, that users might have encountered uh, the most frequently are these sort of uh, desaturation or blur filters that uh, Instagram and, and Facebook primarily will sometimes put on content as a form of warning. So the content is blurred out. Uh, there's a message on top that says uh, something about a fact check or the reliability of the information. And you just have to actually click or, or tap on the post to clear this filter and, and see the content. Uh, so that's the the closest thing uh, that we've seen in in the wild. Truthfully, we don't have uh, the the transparency or the data or the information we would need from platforms to know comparatively how often users see those warnings versus the likely much more common uh, contextual warnings and labels. But they are out there. Platforms are starting to test these kinds of designs.
1: One thing that I see, and I'm curious if this would count as an interstitial warning, is on Twitter. If you try to retweet something that has a link, but Twitter has detected that you have not yet clicked on the link. It will sometimes pop up a thing saying, "Do you want to actually read the link of this thing you're about to retweet before you retweet it?" And and you know, I found that a kind of interesting thing. and on in, on occasion, it has actually gotten me to to click on the link of the thing that I'm going to retweet to to my followers. Um, and so would, would would that count as an interstitial warning under your typology?
2: Yeah, that is another format of of interstitial. The key difference being that uh, that one is deployed at the time of sharing or reposting as opposed to uh, the point of of consumption. But uh, yes, uh, platforms, including Twitter, are experimenting with interstitials at time of sharing. Uh, I've seen those types of warnings that uh, ask you to make sure you've read the content. And I've also seen some uh, proposed at least, that ask you to uh, sort of reconsider the content of a, of a post, if it has, you know, hurtful or or, or aggressive language in it, uh, something like that. So uh, that is a side of interstitials that platforms are exploring as well.
0: I'm circling back briefly to, to Alan's question about uh, how often platforms are using these kinds of warnings. One of the great challenges here is when platforms give out numbers about how often warnings appear. Those usually aren't broken out by type of warning. Uh, And then they're also not broken out uh, in any way that gives you context for the relative frequency of those warnings as compared to the rest of the content on the platforms. Um, A colleague of mine likes to refer to this as the denominator problem. Companies like to give out the numerator, but they don't give out the denominator. And so the, the current state of transparency around these warnings leaves an awful
1: lot to be desired. So let's turn to the policy implications of this and and you know let let's assume and I think your research does a good job of of demonstrating at least a kind of prima facie case that interstitial warnings are much more effective than contextual warnings and are just substantially effective in in their own right. So, you know, should platforms use them at scale? And one thing that you point out is that platforms have sometimes been hesitant to use interstitial warnings. Uh, because they're perceived as as too forceful. So earlier in the conversation, Jonathan, you refer to the kind of First Amendment implications or really they're not so much First Amendment because that's private platforms, but the the free expression implications of putting roadblocks, putting friction between users and things they'd like to read or things they'd like to share. And so, you know, platforms might, I think, legitimately be concerned that interstitial warnings are kind of too much of a thumb on the scale of the autonomy of, of users and then another thing that occurred to me is that platforms might also worry that, you know, even if they're willing to uh, kind of micromanage the behavior of their users in this way, the users will themselves get quite annoyed by intrusive warnings. And I, I suspect that in the security research field, you know, people have had to think about that as well, right? You want to protect users from themselves, but you don't want them to get super annoyed at the you know at the operating system that's not letting them do what they want to do. So are these are these fears, right, that these Interstitial warnings, they're, they're just they're too heavy handed. Are these fears unfounded or is there a limit to the usefulness of interstitial warnings for this reason? I'm going to take the academic way out and say we don't know.
0: Um, and part of the message we hope folks take away from this research we've done is there's a dire need for experimentation here. Before answering, are these so heavy handed that we shouldn't deploy them or we shouldn't deploy them at scale? Let's find out if they work. Let's find out how heavy-handed they are in the sense of the role of uh, friction and other causal mechanisms that might not be related to informing users. Let's come at this conversation with actual evidence about the trade-offs rather than what we have right now, which is, again, very limited transparency, very slow iteration, and um, what often feel like warnings that are designed not to, to work, but to give platforms something to point to as evidence of dealing with this problem in some way. So I appreciate that's a bit of a cop-out answer, but there's such a knowledge gap about responses to misinformation that I think it's hard to have a grounded policy conversation at present. And so I think the policy conversation should be, how do we close the knowledge gap?
1: On the other hand, one might look at interstitial warnings and say, look, maybe they're better than contextual warnings, but they're still not nearly powerful enough to do the things that we need them to do in terms of disinformation. So to give them a more concrete example, in the in the lawfare post that, that you wrote, summarizing the research, you, you frame these um, interstitial warnings as an alternative to more heavy-handed types of moderation. You know, whether it's blocking the circulation of links, as famously happened to the New York Post with the story of Hunter Biden's laptop, or what may or may not have been Hunter Biden's laptop, uh, or alternatively, de um, deplatforming users who generate misinformation. How should platforms think about using interstitial warnings as alternatives to these? Because you know, one might argue that there are some forms of disinformation that are so damaging, that are so harmful, that really it's not enough just to put a roadblock between users and this information. You have to just eliminate it from the platform's themselves. I agree with that. I And as
0: we wrote in the, the post, there needs to be a spectrum of responses to misinformation and disinformation. And the more there is a risk of harm, the more imminent that risk of harm is, the stronger the case for stepping in with more heavy-handed action. And that's not unique to the misinformation or disinformation context. It's throughout free speech and free expression, law and policy. One of the great challenges here is just understanding what the effects of those various interventions are, right? There's this toolbox that the platforms have. We know what the primary tools in the toolbox are, but we don't know how relatively effective they are and what the trade-offs are. And in the absence of some ability to evaluate that it's kind of like taking shots in the dark and you can see it with the responses the, the platforms are making to various instances of misinformation and disinformation right the, i think the part of the reason why these responses feel so scattershot right some posts get a uh, contextual warning some get a little more sometimes the post is removed sometimes the account is removed sometimes it's a temporary removal is because we don't really have a principled basis for making good judgments about which intervention is the right fit for which kind of problematic content. I I don't mean principled in the sense of, you know, it's like ethically unprincipled, but I mean, in the sense of having a good handle on what the intervention will actually do to address the possible harms created by that content. And it is far from clear that the platforms are putting in the work they need to to understand that kind of trade-off between interventions and uh, addressing risks posed by content. Um, and in fact, there's been some recent reporting suggesting that efforts inside, at least Facebook, to address that information gap and understand uh, the proliferation of problematic content on the platform have gotten squashed by leadership because they don't want to know. So. The disconnect about problematic content, responses to that content, and how to weigh those two against each other uh, does not exist exclusive, uh, exclusively external to the major platforms. It, it appears to be internal too.
1: Jonathan. Uh, so, you know, earlier in this conversation, and I think this relates to what you just said. You know, you've called for more experimentation, and in the Lawfare post, you and and Ben and and your co-authors talk about an agenda of aggressive experimentalism to combat misinformation and, and that's what you'd like to see. And so on the one I want to push push on that a little bit because on the one hand, you know, experiments are good, they generate data, they generate new approaches. But on the other hand, as kind of a society, we're we're way past the era of quote unquote move fast and break things, which was Facebook's now somewhat infamous early approach to building its platforms. Um, and it was fine when Facebook was just a small dating service for Ivy League undergraduates, and not so good when it was the nervous system of the world. Now, you know, these companies, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever, they're the new public square, for better or for worse. And users are, I think, fairly hypersensitive to what the rules of the road are. So, you know, on the one hand, while experimentalism might get us better technical solutions, are are you worried that constantly changing the rules of the road might further undermine the public's confidence that these platforms are are fair? A, a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, the first is
0: the users of these platforms are getting experimented on 24-7. I mean, th- this is uh, at the uh, foundation of the tech sector, this notion that uh, experiment with just about everything, try to get data about what works and what doesn't. The experiments may not be visible, or readily apparent, but any given person's experience with a major online platform is going to have some set of experiments running. A a rather infamous example of this is when Google tried out a ton of different shades of the color blue on a bunch of different users to figure out which um, was most successful in their search engine. So the experimentation is happening, whether we like it or not. Uh, So I I don't think there's a novelty to conducting experiments and trying to Infer what works, you know the, the gap here isn't in the these companies don't experiment is they don't experiment when it comes to dealing with misinformation at least sufficiently the The second uh, thought that comes to mind is I, I think experimentation could actually be good for long term stability of platforms, right if you ran some experiments and you wouldn't have to run them on everyone on the platform right you would run them on uh, some subset of users, ran some experiments, understood it worked, you could then announce. Here's what we're going to do to address misinformation on our platform. Here is the research that substantiates what we're planning to do. Here are the academics we worked with in developing this and vetting that we did what we thought we were doing. Here are the arguments for and against. Here's what we considered. And this is the way it's going to be. I think that would be a much more comfortable place than what we have now, which is, again, the occasional sort of corporate newsroom announcement of some change in policy or some new intervention that the platform is experimenting with, no data, no explanation of whether it's going to work, why it's going to work, why they're doing it at all. That strikes me as a much less comfortable equilibrium.
1: This next question is not so much a question about sort of your specific research, but more about this style of research, this kind of research area as as a whole. And my question here is, you know is there a danger of focusing too much on technological approaches to disinformation if that approach or if that focus crowds out discussion of what we might think of as root causes right and and you know whether it's the social dynamics that cause people to spread and consume disinformation or maybe even more importantly the kind of what you might think of as the political economy of disinformation, right? The fact that, you know, one reason we have disinformation and is such a problem is that we have a small number of incredibly powerful companies that have, if not a monopoly, then pretty impressive market dominance over our attention and a business model that relies on, quote unquote, engagement, uh, which means trying to capture as much of user attention as possible. And the best way of capturing user attention is with things that are extreme and outlandish. And therefore, you know, we can have interstitial warnings, we can have this, we can have that, we can have machine learning and AI and the next best thing. But at the end of the day, as long as Facebook is an advertising platform that relies on sucking up as much of our attention as possible by serving us the most quote unquote engaging content, you know, none of this is going to be more than marginal, and maybe even worse. It's, it's going to give these platforms, going to give these platforms a way of deflecting criticism uh, from the, the root causes of the problem because they can point to all this cool disinformation stuff that they're doing. So there's no doubt that platforms have incentives to
0: talk about warnings and other lighter weight forms of intervention rather than the hard economic questions uh, or the hard societal questions. I was joking before our chat that maybe Ben in addition to doing all this terrific work on mis and disinformation could just go ahead and solve partisan polarization in his dissertation, you know, while he's at it. So, I think it would be valuable to find out how far warnings can get us. Right? It may be that the underlying societal problems are so significant and the mismatch of incentives is so significant for platforms that you know this is like trying to stop a flood with a whatever small thing you might try to stop a flood with <laughs> it's it's unsuccessful <laughs> i ran out of metaphorical runway but you take my meaning and i don't know and i think it's fair to say the research community that works on these issues doesn't know how far we could get with different kinds of interventions. And before asking the really hard questions about business models and, you know, for example, do you start taxing all of the online services in this space and redistributing funds to, to newsrooms? Do you, you know, try to require different key metrics, you know, really heavy handed stuff before going there, it'd be good to know whether uh steps short of that, are effective and we don't have that data right now. And in some sense there's there's a compelled tra- I think there's a trade-off for the platforms, right? If if they don't want to play ball with researchers and explore what the middle ground looks like, that may strengthen the case for more heavy-handed intervention because it's it's going to look like the middle ground stuff doesn't work.
2: Yeah, I just want to expand on that a little bit, right? Platforms are sort of already doing this type of point of consumption intervention as their primary response to this information, warnings, removals, deranking, all the things that we discussed earlier. And so I think there is value in research that takes those claims at, at face value and says, is it true that these are these are effective? Can they be made effective? Are you really doing everything that you could? Are you investing you know, the necessary amount of resources, of, of, of research time and expertise to make these warnings actually functional? Or are you just using them as a cover? And maybe if I could riff on this for just a
0: second, this is a real knowledge gap among the folks who might be regulating this, these platforms. One of the things I found working in the Senate on social media issues that frustrated me most was how little perspective federal legislators and regulators had into the operations of these platforms. And so when making hard policy calls, there just wasn't nearly as much as you would hope to go on. This knowledge gap about, like, could we make this work or do we have to do something more heavy handed? It exists not just in the research
1: community, maybe not just in the platforms. Uh, also in the federal government. I think this is a, a good place to end the conversation. Ben, Jonathan, thank you very much for for joining me and talking about this, for writing about this for Lawfare. It's really, really interesting research. I, I hope it is disseminated widely and read widely by researchers and tech companies and, and policy people, because it, it really does add a lot of empirical data to an area in which I think is often just led by, at least in the public conversation, by intuition. Uh, so thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Alan. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate this podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Hamza Shittu of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer. And Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.